Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. I almost forgot how to say that because it's been a while. It's been a little while. Yeah. Sorry about that. We were busy. We were busy and lots of shit has happened. And continues to happen. Yes. I know it's not, it's, we're not special in that regard, but... We have been on vacation for the past two weeks, and a good friend of ours, I thought was going to do an interview, but ended up not doing one, which I totally understand, so that kind of affected one episode coming out, and then we just kind of... We were on vacation. We were on vacation. With four dogs. Yes, which is, <laughs> we kept thinking that we were going to do, like, a Tales from the Road kind of episode, and then realized, like, that that was not going to work. We, like, brought the microphone and everything... And it, it just it wasn't going to happen. The microphone got covered in some sort of goo. Oh, did it? Mm-hmm. Ooh. I cleaned it. Oh, thank you. I'm not sure if it's recording anything. <laughs> so me being the true crime fanatic more so than Kevin, but you definitely know some true crime. I'm more of a fan of performing true crime. <laughs> <laughs> but we did get to talking about a lot of cases on the trip, and so we thought we would just kind of do like a kind of quote-unquote fun collection of Tales from the Road. Yeah. And, and there's just too many to, to count. I mean, you have all the interstate killers who pulled people over who were on trips and stuff. I mean, just to name a few, there's Randall Woodfield, Larry Eiler. You have a personal connection to Randall Woodfield, but we won't get into that this episode. He'll have his own episode. Someday. Yeah. We can so. reveal <laughs> my relationship. Our secrets. There's just a ton of, you know, interstate killers, especially in California, because there's so many freaking interstates here. There's a ton of just camping murders in general, which is just a bummer. It's actually a good place to murder someone because you don't those have tend to, like, to be unsolved. Drive too. to the woods because you're already in the woods. And it seems like a totally rando kind of crime too. Yeah, it does seem like camping murders are Always, it's just someone wanting to kill somebody else. It doesn't seem to be that the person is planned. It's just that they want to murder someone. Yeah, they're just releasing their inner Voorhees. And if you don't know the person that you're murdering, that becomes infinitely more difficult to solve because there's no connection, you know? Right. That's why there's just been a ton of them and so many camping ones are unsolved if they happened in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, which we're going to talk about a few. Who is the dude that had the murder kit stashed ever? Israel Keys. Right. So yes. his, he, I think, was able to elude police for so long because his shit was so random. Yeah. 
weirdly random and, and, we- and so weirdly planned. planned at the same yeah. time. That guy is a freak. Yeah. Man, I mean, I feel like for a moment everybody was doing an episode on Israel Keys, which makes me not want to do one on him, but he is a really interesting dude. If you want to know more about Israel Keys, way more than you would ever want to know, there is a dude named Josh something rather, and he has... Is that his name? <laughs> he has a podcast called True Crime Bullshit, and I believe that some of the letters and shit are asterisks so that he can, you know have it on iTunes or whatever. Yeah. And it is all focused on Israel Keys every single episode. And I believe I you know, I listen to like five or six episodes and it's it's a lot. Like I don't want to know. Is he still pumping them out? Yeah. (laughs) That's I I stopped I stopped listening after episode five or six, but I I believe he's still going on. I was on his Facebook group for a while. I I left because it was just a lot of what's the word? Like like, oh, Josh, you're so great. Just like totally stroking his ego. Oh, stroking his ego. That's what I was trying to say. You just said it. Yeah. And and he's, he seems like a ridiculously smart dude and all that stuff. But I just don't want to know that much about Israel Keys. It's one of the reasons I've kind of stopped going into like the deep dive single story podcast so much. I don't want to know that much about any specific individual or story. I don't think. Every once in a while, I'll get sucked into something. Like my favorite one is Cold. About Susan Powell, which if you haven't listened to it yet, it's the best thing I've ever listened to. And if you haven't heard in the Susan Powell case, her parents were awarded $10 million basically from the state saying, whoops, yeah, we fucked up. The state will do that. And they fucked up that is. Yes. And they are still currently looking for her remains because it is pretty much unanimous in terms of everybody surrounding the case, everyone thinks that she is gone and that Josh Powell, her piece of shit husband, killed her. So, I mean, it's just, it's a crazy story. So if you haven't listened to it yet, Cold is the best single story podcast I've ever listened to. There's a couple others that really keep you on the edge of your seats, but just not quite the quality of Cold. So I'll just say that. So with all that being said, anything you want to say, Kevin? We've missed you guys. Yeah, and I just want to say that over the last couple weeks, there have been a lot of people in my orbit who have passed away due to many, many different things. So this episode goes out to them. I've had um, one of my former students, Jordan, in Portland, as well as another former sort of student. His name was Mr. I had two of his brothers as my students, and he was a student at the school that I taught at. Both of them were gunned down in Northeast Portland. And then a good friend of ours in Seattle passed away of natural causes. So we want to give a shout out to Kim. Yep. Really, really amazing woman. And just recently, I found out yesterday, a friend of mine from Ventura um, recently passed away. And so it's just been a lot, like four deaths to people that I've cared about you know, at some point or another in my life in the last like two weeks. It's just a lot. So and I know you didn't know all of them or anything, but it's still yeah, you're still my husband (laughs) and you feel what I feel. So it's been kind of a rough couple weeks. Just yeah. Yeah. It's just I mean, I was pretty okay friends with Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the years, she played guitar in a band called Anhedonist from Seattle and they fucking kick ass. And 
God, it's probably been 10 years ago, our bands would play a lot of shows together. And we would cross paths on different tours. We ended up in San Antonio, Texas for mm. the Rites of Darkness 3 Festival, which for those of, in the death metal circle was a pretty infamous fest. Yeah. So, yeah, she had a long, hard fight, and I can't believe she fought so well. Yeah. So yeah. she's not hurting anymore. Yeah. So this episode really goes out to all of the, the the loved ones who we've lost in the last couple of weeks. With that all being said, we are going to talk about three different cases, all having to do with either like camping or being on like a trip, basically. So the first one is a really, really popular one, which is why I'm not going to go super duper in depth with it because there are tons of podcasts and great long form articles and even books about this case. But I at least wanted to mention it because it's probably one of the most infamous camping killings and it is unsolved. And it does seem that maybe there will be some development in the next year or two maybe solving this very, very old cold case. And that is the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Have you ever heard of this one before? No. I We've talked briefly about it. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this one, too, is that I've spent many summers at Girl Scout camp. You weren't a Boy Scout or anything, were you? You were, What were you? I was a Cub Scout. Oh. Are you um, okay? Yeah, I... You know, look at me. I am perfectly good. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't get diddled. Oh, if, if I, that's what you're asking, I, th- I, think I could. Yeah. I could tell where you're going with this. Yeah, and, they're know. pretty infamous. Yeah, the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders is an unsolved murder case that occurred on the morning of June thirteenth, nineteen seventy seven, at Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. The victims were three girls between the ages of 8 and 10 who were raped and murdered. Their bodies had been left on a trail leading to the showers about 150 yards away from their tent at the summer camp. Less than two months before the murders, during an on-site training session, a camp counselor discovered that her belongings had been ransacked and her donuts had been stolen. Inside the empty donut box was a disturbing handwritten note. The writer of the note vowed to murder three campers. The director of the camp session treated the note as a prank and it was discarded. Wow. Yeah. That is fucking foreshadowing. That is weird. Is very this is a very weird case. Who eats donuts and then wants to kill? Usually (laughs) Yeah, right? Usually I want to kill myself for being such a gluttonous. Fuck. So, anticipating the two weeks of fun and activities, Lori Farmer, eight, Michelle Goose, nine, and Denise Milner, ten, were heading to the Girl Scout camp. Located just two miles away from town in Mays County, Camp Scott had been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928. So, by this point, it had been nearly 50 years that this camp had been operating, pretty much what, from what I can see, with no issue. Generations of girls had gone there for the annual two-week getaway. There was something kind of like that when I was in Girl Scouts. I can't even remember where where it was at this point. Because there was a couple different ones that we would go to. But a big one that we would go to was Idlewild. 
Not familiar. Oh, okay. It's in Idlewild, and I haven't even thought about that word in so long. It's somewhere in California. It's probably Central California or something. Idlewild. Idlewild. I don't know. It's... I went to camp. Did you? Yeah. With the I cubs? think it was school-related. Was it sixth-grade camp? I don't know. That would be... Outdoor school? Something like that. But was there's... it for like a week? Yeah. Yeah. It was probably your sixth-grade outdoor school camp. I remember trust falls and... Did you drop people? I don't trust anyone. But I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs> I could see you dropping people, though, on purpose. No, I was still pretty nice. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that, but... Did you, uh, did you remember having fun? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, mine was fun. I remember mine really well. How do you barely remember yours? I do remember there was a bear that came through camp. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Nothing like that happened. Maybe it was two dudes in a bear suit. <laughs> but it was, yeah, everyone had to go to their cabins. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay, so these three girls, they get to their cabin. They keep calling it a tent, but I'm pretty sure it was a cabin. And the saddest thing on earth is that the girl, Denise Milner, she was one of the very, very, very few African-American girls who were on this camping trip. And aside from the fact that she didn't want to go, she also just didn't, I don't think she felt like she totally belonged because just not a lot of people looked like her. And so uh, a camp counselor really did take her under her wing. But there was this note that was found that she wrote, she must have um, written it like the night, because I'm pretty sure that they were murdered like the first night of camp. So she must have written this within the first few hours of being at camp. But this is the note that she wrote. It's so fucking heartbreaking. Are you ready? Are you ready? I think so. This, okay. The cursive looks. Yeah, I actually that, have the real actually, note right here. Yeah, it actually puts a way more fucked up yeah. spin on this. Yeah. Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three... New. New? New... What does that say? I'm assuming friends. Married? Yeah, that's what it looks like. Three new, maybe roommates or friends, I'm assuming. Um, Linda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Okay, I don't... Then I don't know what that word is, but... Mom, I don't want to stay in camp for two weeks. I want to come home to see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Oh, that was found either. I'm not sure if she sent that and her mom received it or if it was found with her things. But right. just getting that note after she'd been fucking slaughtered, you know, raped yeah. and slaughtered. Well, it says the first day it rained. So maybe the, the crime didn't happen the yeah, and like we're going over this very, very briefly, so we don't have all the all the details. So anyways, it was fairly apparent that Denise did not want to be there and she was not happy there. The other girls, I would say, are younger and there just isn't as much information. But that night, something happened or early in the morning. And then at 6 a.m., there was a camp counselor going on her way to the showers to take a quick shower before all the girls got up. And she noticed Denise outside of her sleeping bag, like 150 yards away from her tent. And she thought it looked weird. And she went up to her. And that's when she realized that she wasn't moving. 
And she hadn't seen the other two girls yet because they were actually zipped up inside of their sleeping bags outside as well. So she ran back to the camp and got the camp director and the nurse. And that's when they realized that all three girls were dead. That's some creepy shit. Yeah, like zipped up. Yeah. Yeah. Autopsies would reveal that Lori and Michelle were killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Denise had been beaten, but also strangled with a ligature. All had been sexually assaulted. Investigators determined that the attacks had taken place inside of the tent and the bodies were moved to the tree, which I think is weird because it seems like the killer maybe wants the girls to be found like right away as opposed to like if he had left them in the tent. Right. They would have been better hidden and they would have it would have been even longer before they were found, you know? Yeah. It's weird. It's I mean, obviously, luckily, I don't have the mind of a killer, but I just don't get that weird logic. So immediately, camp officials began sending Girl Scouts home on buses and out of the camp where police were now investigating a triple murder. Police combed the woods for evidence. The DA announced that a cave had been found in the area, creepy, less than two miles from camp. It included items possibly stolen from the camp. There were a pair of glasses, a roll of tape that matched tape found at the crime scene, and some pictures linked to a man named Gene Leroy Hart, who had once worked in a photo lab at the local prison. In addition, biological evidence, including sperm and hair samples, were found on the girls. A footprint was also found in the mud after the thunderstorm that previous evening. So they have a lot of circumstantial evidence at this point. The authorities claimed that the cave was connected to this Gene Leroy Hart. He was 33 at the time, and he was a convicted burglar and rapist who was an expert woodsman and also had family members living in the area. He was a prison escapee and had been on the run for four years after he escaped from the Mays County Jail. Yeah, he sounds like a pretty good suspect. Yeah. So he was a native of Locust Grove and a Cherokee Indian who was now facing three first-degree murder charges. He was arrested by OSBI agents at a property in a remote part of the eastern Cherokee County near Locust Grove on April 6, 1978. 21 months after the murders, his trial began. But once the trial began, everything kind of started to fall apart that they thought was pretty solid. So remember, DNA wouldn't be introduced until later into the 80s and 90s. And hair evidence had been discredited as a forensic technique. So a lot of the stuff that they had just wasn't really usable, you know. Mm-hmm. Police admitted that the evidence they had found was not conclusive proof that he had committed the crime and there had been no fingerprints. Trying to console the families, the prosecution pointed out that Hart was no way going free. Because he was an escapee, he had you know, other offenses under his belt, plus running, escaping from prison. So there was no way he was going to get out of prison. So even if he was found not guilty of the crime, which, spoiler alert, he was found not guilty of the crime, Ooh. he was still going to be in prison for life. Because he was still on the lam, right? Yes. So basically, the evidence, like the footprint did not match his foot. The glasses they couldn't prove, like, were his 
And then the items that were found, like they had no fingerprints on them, so they couldn't be conclusively tied to him. So the whole case just fell apart in court and there was tons of reasonable doubt. And so the jury did exactly what they should do. If there is reasonable doubt that somebody didn't do something, then you have to like, you have to let them go. Like if the evidence isn't there and it's too circumstantial, you just, you can't acquit somebody on that, you know? If the glove don't fit. Acquit. Wait, acquit means let them go, right? Okay. Yep. All right. I may have had that backwards. But anyways. So the thing that kind of sucked, though, is that so right after the trial, within like, I would say a few months, Hart died. That sucks, right? He collapsed during exercising and died at a, of a heart attack at like in his mid 30s. That that does sound weird. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there was anything shady about it. I just think that like he was in really poor health and so that's just what happened. So even if he was the person who did it, you're not going to get any more out of him. And because the police really thought that they had their guy, they did not continue. That's what's always interesting is that like you put all your eggs in one basket for one dude, you know, he's not your dude, right? Or he's found not guilty at least. And then the police are like, yeah, fuck that. We're not going to keep looking because that was our guy, you know? Same thing with like the OJ Simpson trial. It's like when he was found not guilty, did they continue looking for the killers? No, because the police were convinced that they had the right guy that didn't, they just didn't have the right evidence, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I really wonder, I tried to see if there were any other suspects in the Oklahoma, you know, Girl Scout killings, and there there wasn't. So, like. So, that was just, it was just dropped. He's found not guilty, and then that's just, And then he dies. And then that's just the end of the case. Period. Yeah. So, it's technically unsolved, but a lot of people think, kind of consider it solved because they're like, it was probably him. But there's just no, like, that's what's so unsatisfying about the story. And that's one of the reasons I want to lead with it, because it's not going to be our only story that we're going to talk about. But it was just this very unsettling, you know, thing. And so since then, in 1989, the FBI tested the sample and they were unable to rule out heart because the tests were inconclusive, which was an, a very also very unsettling and kind of shitty feeling too, right? And so as DNA technology continues to advance, they just can't quite connect it to him, but they also can't rule him out because it's too degraded of a sample to create a good profile. So they can't rule him out, but they can't rule him in. It's yeah, very, that's... very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I read was that they're still looking for advancements in DNA. I mean, they have pretty amazing stuff that they can do now. It's like if you can even if you can even get like a partial profile, a lot of times they can kind of multiply that and make a full profile. But that shit costs money. And it's I don't think like a solid science at this point. And so they were just saying that I think that more money had been like donated to kind of solving this cold case. And so it's not the end of the story. But God damn, it's an unsettling, unsatisfactory ending for now. Yeah. Yeah. If you have any information about the Girl Scout murders, like, I don't know, your dad did it or something, please call. <laughs> please, or like grandpa, please call the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation at 405-848-6724 and tell them that we sent you at the, here at the True Crime Dumpster. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell them the dumpster sent you. <laughs> 
Uh, so that's just kind of like a very classic cold case that a lot of people cover. So again, we did not cover it that great, but it just kind of kept coming up on our trip because I, you know, so much of my youth was camping with the Girl Scouts and I didn't know about the case then, but knowing about it now, it, it is unsettling getting into your tent at night, you know, but what was nice about this trip is that all the camping we did was in a car. So harder to kill me if I'm in a car. That's right. But we did drive through some super desolate. Sketchy areas. You know, spots along the northern California coast that, like, if you dumped someone out there, you you would never find them. Yeah. So the next case came up a lot, especially when we were in, where was was it the last place we went camping? Jessica kept calling it Mars. Uh, (laughs) What was the camp? Gold Ledge Camp. On the mm. off the Kern River, yeah, near the, the Sequoia, Sequoia National, National Forest. Forest. So every day it was at least a hundred degrees, and it felt like we were on fire the entire time. It was hot as shit, and there was no shade, and so. And our dogs were about to burst into flames. <laughs> they were about to combust. Yeah, they hated life. <laughs> so we ended up, you know, cutting out of there a half a day earlier just to get to. Some cooler weather on the coast. But one thing that kept coming up was this idea of if something were to happen to you in that kind of weather or that kind of setting, that kind of desolate setting, like what would you do? So the kind of classic case, and I've only heard a couple podcasts cover this, and it's a very, very interesting case because it's one of those I think about a lot of like, what would you do? And so I want to know what you would do, Kevin. And I'm getting most of my information for this from a book called Journal of the Dead, A Story of Friendship and Murder in the New Mexico Desert by Jason Kirsten. I don't know if you know this. Well, maybe you do. But every year, about 200 people die in national parks across the country. Did you know that? I didn't know that that the number was too... Like, it seems too, high. It does seem kind of high. But have you heard of all the people that go missing in national yeah. parks? Yeah. That's Ugh. even higher. Yeah, I bet. And f- fucking weird. So they drown, they fall, and they drive into trees. However, none have died as strangely as David Coughlin. So... In July of 1999, so a little more recent, David Coughlin and Rafi Kodikian, who were two best friends in their 20s living in the Boston area, they went on a road trip from Massachusetts to California. Six days into their journey, they arrived at the Carlsbad Caverns National Park, a sun-blasted section of the Chihuahuan Desert in southern New Mexico. Have you ever been there? You know, I don't think I ever have. I think I maybe did as like a little kid because I do remember my parents taking me to very hot places in New Mexico. And all I remember is just buying, trying to buy turquoise jewelry. There's a lot of both. Yeah. So I just remember being very hot. My parents really like to, <laughs> whenever we did do road trips as a kid, it seemed like they were to very not nice places. <laughs> it's cheap there. Yeah. So they were poor. And so they were trying to find dispersed camping, you know, camping for free. And a park ranger suggested Rattlesnake Canyon. That sounds promising. Yeah. Let's go take a nice long walk around Rattlesnake Canyon. Let's let's go to Venom Killer Camp, you know. (laughs) So they parked at the trailhead and walked a mile down to the canyon floor. 
and they filled out the one-night camping permit and bought three pints of water from the gift shop and then left to pitch their tent before nightfall. Now, I know between the two of them and the rangers actually suggested for that weather and for that location, no less than a gallon per person per day. Hmm, I think I know who the culprit is. Wait, what? Mother Nature. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, the ranger uh. told them. Okay. They they were kids. I mean, not totally kids. They were in their 20s, but they were stupid. They were making bad decisions. Sounds like it. Yeah. So three days passed, and the pair did not return. On the fourth day, so th- what? that's what's nice about the camping trail behind the Timberline Lodge. They have the thing that you're supposed to fill out because it's such a long trail yeah. that they want to know when you started so that they know what. And that also, Ramona Falls was like that too. A lot of I'm places in Oregon. Sure, like when there's trails that go into like technically like wilderness areas. I'm not sure if that's pretty standard to have like a. I haven't seen any in California. But I've I've run into at least three in Oregon, like Ramona Falls, that Timberline Lodge. Right. One. I don't know if we've been to like official wilderness area in California yet. Yeah, maybe not. Not hiking. Yeah. Because we're smarter than that. (laughs) (laughs) So on the fourth day, a ranger searching for the overdue campers discovered Kodikian, badly dehydrated, lying in his tent on the canyon floor. The ranger asked, where's your buddy? He said over there, pointing to a pile of rocks that marked a shallow grave. I killed him. After sleeping in the canyon overnight, Kodikian and Coughlin broke camp and made for the car. The Rattlesnake Canyon Trail can be tricky. It's only marked with little stone cairns. I don't I didn't look that up. I'm assuming Cairn, yeah. I, I'm assuming like a path. I'm guessing that it's like those little stone towers that you like to knock over <laughs> so the pair missed their turn and they became lost that would be me i'm i i that's why too I, busy knocking over the cairns <laughs> Karens. they did um they did not have a compass and they did not have a topographical map of the area who travels with a topographical map well just showing it, the terrain i know what topographical means Almost like any map you're going to get from AAA is going to be topographical. (laughs) (laughs) Topographical. Say it one more time. Say it one more time. Topographical, topographical, topographical. Okay. I'm just saying like they were not prepared. They only had three pints of water. I know. So Kodikian and Coughlin, they hiked all day under a broiling sun and they drank the last of their water. Oh, and this is a bummer, too. So they, like I said, the Carlsbad Rangers recommended a gallon of, of per person per day in the backcountry. And one of the pints of water that they had, they used to boil hot dogs, and then they threw the water out. So technically, they only had two pints between the two of them. Could you imagine boiling your hot dogs and throwing out the water? And then, you know, like, two days later being like, oh, my God, what I would fucking give for that so for some hot dog water. Yeah, tepid hot dog water. You could just eat hot dogs. You, you don't have just to boil them. Suck the moisture out of them. <laughs> like a vampire. You know, this story is like sounding like there's a lot of Darwin at work here. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see. So, after another night, Kodikian and Coughlin rose and made bad decisions. You don't say. So they hiked across the 100-degree canyon floor and climbed to the top of the opposite rim where Kodikian had seen a moving light, perhaps headlights indicating a road the night before. There was no road. He was exhausted, dehydrated, and panicked. So they sat in the shade of a bush and watched the vultures circle overhead. Yeah, that's not a good sign. Yeah. And Kodikian wrote in his journal, We will not let the buzzards get us alive. They straggled back into their camp. They both ate cactus fruit, desperate for the juice. They decided it was time to employ the oldest trick in the book, that they would drink their own urine. Hell yeah. And uh, Kodikian tried, gagged, and abandoned the idea. And actually what there what has been found is that drinking your own urine, it it's so much to process that toxin. Because, I mean, pee is toxins. It's, it's what your body wants to get rid of. So when you put it back through your body again, it takes so much to process that the liquid that you get out of it, the it's not even worth it because you're putting your body into more, you know, dehydration by, you know, using that energy to process toxins that have already l- exited your system. So it's not a good thing to you drink, drink your, your own, own But what if you drink your buddies? I'm pretty sure it would be the same thing. Okay. It's like drinking salt water. Like, it seems like it's a good idea. I've been doing that a lot. I, <laughs> I did a, a lot well, yesterday. Well, you're also not dying of dehydration, so. I feel like it. During the third night, Coughlin began vomiting uncontrollably. By dawn, he had lost all hope. Coughlin begged Kodikian to end his life and spare him the the oncoming agony. Convinced that they would both die, Kodikian obliged. And a few hours later, after he killed his fucking friend by stabbing him in the heart, the ranger showed up. Yeah. I know. So New Mexico police didn't buy Kodikian's story. I don't care what anyone says, Eddie County Sheriff Mark Anthony Click said. People just don't do that to their friends. The county prosecutor was similarly unimpressed. You don't get to kill someone in the state of Mexico just because they ask you to, he said. If Kodikian's story was not true, why else would he kill his friend? There's one theory that maybe Coughlin had confessed that he had fooled around with Kodikian's former girlfriend at some point and they, like, got into a fight or something. But I don't know. That seems like not enough, right? You know, if you're on death's bed, drinking your piss, and your buddy's like, yeah, I used to mess around with your ex-girlfriend... Yeah. Who fucking cares? Exactly. So I don't really like that theory, but it is a theory. And even like Kodikian's lawyer was like, I don't know what to do with this. Because the thing is, is he admits like, yeah, it was a mercy killing. He asked me to. And so none of should have still- had a notary <laughs> sign off on that one. The vulture notary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So regardless he had already admitted to killing his friend and burying him. And he did a what what they call a cowboy funeral where it's basically to keep the vultures from attacking his body. So because it's like pretty impossible to dig, especially if you don't have any tools or anything out in the, you know, in the in the wild in the desert, in the desert 
um, what he did was he put his body there and he stacked many stones on top of his body. And the police and people thought that was a little weird because they're like, okay, you barely you're you're about to die or what you perceive to be, you know, about to die. Yeah. And here you are lifting up to 70 pound stones and you have the energy to stab your friend through the heart and then lift all these stones. How, how'd you find that? And so you, you didn't have like, ah, you know, it's like you didn't have energy, but enough, but you had enough to kill your friend and bury him, give him a cowboy funeral so that the vultures wouldn't get him. That just shows the amount of respect Mm, okay. He had for his friend. Well, and that's what I think he, he was didn't trying to want go with. The vultures to eat him. Yes. Although, if he had let the vultures eat him, the he may have gotten murder. away with it. Yeah. yeah. Vultures did it. <laughs> Coughlin's death may have been a mercy killing, but nonetheless, it was still a killing. Kodikian pleaded guilty to second degree murder. During Kodikian's sentencing hearing, it became apparent that Coughlin's vomiting was not the end stage of death by thirst. It was probably a reaction to the unripe cactus fruit he had previously eaten. So him and Kodikian were dehydrated, but plenty of other people have gone longer in hotter weather and survived. All they needed to do was sit tight and wait for help. So they didn't have any water. There were vultures flying overhead. He really did think, I guess, that this was going to be the end. And so he said in court, what I thought I was doing was keeping my friend from going through 12 to 24 hours of hell before he died. So he was just trying to hurry along the inevitable, I guess. He was trying to, like, spare his friend from suffering. But then what's so weird is that why didn't he kill himself then afterward? He didn't have it. The energy after lifting those boulders. So this is where I want your opinion on it. So Kodikian, he was sentenced to two years in prison, um, 16 months of which he served, and he was released in November of 2001. I believe he lives in Seattle now. We'll leave him alone, but... (sighs) Don't go camping with that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the question that, you know, I kept bringing up on our trip. What would you do if your best friend were dying in the desert and asked you to kill them mercifully? Would you do it? Like if it like Nick was like, come on, Kevin, just fucking kill me. I can't do this anymore. And you had enough energy to keep going. I See, that's the thing. If he had enough energy to keep going, I'd be like, oh, fuck no. I'll carry you then. You know? Huh. I would say. um You wouldn't do it, would you? I would say. Have another glass of piss (laughs) and call me in the morning. (laughs) If you still want me to do it in the morning, have another glass of piss. So I ain't going to kill you, buddy. Yeah, I I wouldn't do it either. Period. But you can drink my pee. But I also have to wonder what he was hallucinating or what delusions he was having that would make it seem like it was a fucking good idea and this wasn't day one of their trip or anything like this this is they got to carlsbad six days into their trip so it was easily like their ninth day of travel so it's not like i just don't feel like this was like a long game you know to like kill his friend or anything crime of passion i don't know i think well he would argue that it's a crime of mercy right so not a crime 
Just a mercy killing. Mercy killing. I don't know. Did he get enough time? 16 months. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, who am I to say? Well, I'm asking you. Oh, you are asking <laughs> me. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. I, I don't like it. It makes me very uncomfortable. Because people go to prison for way lesser offenses for way longer, you know? Yeah. I just don't know how you would live people with yourself. People are in jail for longer for having, like, weed and shit. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. It's just... And on top of that, if I was the Kodikian guy, I don't think I could live with myself. Sounds like maybe... He's okay. The best friend part was maybe one-sided. Yeah, maybe. So... That's another weird one. We're going to do one more, which has sort of a happy ending. I like sort of happy endings. So that's why I left it for the end. Because the first one is technically unsolved. The second one is very unsatisfying. And then the third one is, it's still a bummer because people die. Okay. Spoiler alert. People die. But there may be some justice coming. All right, Justice. Okay, so this one we're going to shoot back to 1976. Okay. The year you were born. That was a good that was a good one. Yeah. So this is right before you were born in July of 1976. There was a dude named David Schultz. Schultz. Schultz? Schultz. Yeah. I don't think it's Schultz, but David is spelled S-C-H-U-L-D-E-S. David Schultz was 25 and worked at the Press Gazette's circulation department. Ellen Matthews was 24 and had a job at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay Library. That day, on July 9th in 1976, they had just begun a weekend camping trip in Silver Cliff, Wisconsin, at the McClintock McClintock Park Camping Ground, northeast of Lakewood. McClintock. 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 It's kind of fun to say. It is kind of fun to say. So after they set up their tent, the couple headed for a nature walk, something that you and I do when we go camping, right? What else are you going to (laughs) do? Before setting out, Matthews used a bathroom at the campground. While Schultz waited outside, he was gunned down with a blast from a 30 caliber rifle. The bullet entered his neck, killing him immediately. That will do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. So Matthews either fled or was ordered into a wooded area a hundred yards from the bathroom. She was sexually assaulted and then shot twice in the chest. At about 2.30 p.m. that same day, Schultz's body was discovered. After an extensive search, his fiance was found the next morning. Wow. It's crazy that they found one and it took them a whole other day to find the other. Investigators immediately ruled out robbery because none of their cash was taken and Schultz had a camera still slung on his shoulder that wasn't taken. Semen was recovered from Matthews's body, according to the criminal complaint. A sample was preserved, and Matthews is the woman. The case went cold, unsolved for over 40 years. So that was 1976, right? Right. In the 90s, as DNA technology emerged, the unknown suspect's DNA from the sex assault was uploaded to the Combined DNA Index System, also known as CODIS. 
but there was no match. You've heard of CODIS before, right? Yes. So CODIS only works as well as whoever they have in the system. You have to be You have to be a criminal. Yeah, yeah, you have to be in the system. So it's not going to just have everybody in there, which is kind of hard to believe that this double homicide happens and that this guy never reoffends. Like that's pretty crazy. A double homicide? A one and done. Yeah. So, but it happens. In March of 2018, investigators sought assistance from Parabon Nanolabs, which I would like to do a whole episode on. They're this amazing laboratory who they are on the cutting edge of technology and genealogical studies. They're the ones who can kind of put faces to like Jane Doe's and John Doe's and stuff like their DNA. Like if they're skeleton, like they can take skeletons and DNA and like guess the race and do sketches of victims and stuff or offenders, you know. What's so, the nano part? Do they do like nanotech stuff too? I'm what? sure. I mean, I think that they do everything. It's, it's, it's this laboratory who is just like, they're on the cutting edge of everything. So Parabon Nanolabs is a Virginia-based company that has really revolutionized cold case investigation by combining suspect DNA with genealogical databases. So they're the ones that also are connecting the voluntary handing over of your DNA from places like 23andMe. So a lot of people think it's like, oh, if I turn in my DNA, like I'm going to be automatically entered into it. No, you have to voluntarily do it. It's an extra step if you want to be included into that database, like the one that's used with uh, by law enforcement. And so Parabon Labs is one of the first places to really kind of tap into that. Um, I know it is sketchy, but at the same time, but at the same time, if it catches fucking killers and not a whole lot of other stuff, maybe it isn't so bad. I don't know. We voluntarily give up our privacy every day when we use our phones. True. So this is just another way of like not having control over your own privacy. In December 2018, the company was able to narrow down a suspect pool to a specific family with ties to the Green Bay, Wisconsin area. According to the criminal complaint, identifying the family of Gladys M. Brunette and Edward K. Van Van Nieuwenhoven. I'm going to say that wrong. I know. Look at that name. Van Van Nieuwenhoven. I thought my name was cool. (laughs) As possible suspects in the homicide. So they basically narrowed it down to this one family. The couple had four sons and four grandsons, all possible suspects in the 1976 lane. I'm assuming that the grandsons weren't possible suspects. but Was this like the Texas Chainsaw family? What's going on here? So investigators started hunting down DNA. So like basically Parabon Labs was able to narrow it down to basically four suspects, right? Probably Gladys for her, you know, 65th birthday was like, oh, I want to know how much Native American I am. I don't know. But she probably, you know, entered her shit somewhere. <laughs> it reminds me of, of your aunt. <laughs> She probably entered her stuff somewhere and was like, ooh, I want to solve cold cases. She was probably much older than 65 because if this dude, if this happened in 76, I'm sure she's much older. But anyways, you know, Gladys probably wanted some, you know, to find out how much of her white was different kinds of white from Europe and stuff. You know, you know the type. 
And or maybe like her cousin or sister did or something like that. And it narrowed it down to this family, four of which are all the only viable suspects. So once they were able to get it down that far, the police had to rule out of the four, three of them. Right. So that leaves one. Yes. <laughs> yes. The first son was eliminated after police went through his trash and they found an inhaler that they tested against the crime scene and it wasn't a match. The second son, they got a coffee cup from him or from a neighbor. That's weird. And they they eliminated the second son. So the third son was this dude named Ray or Raymond. And they went to his house and there was no easy way, I think, like the first two brothers to eliminate him. So they had to go with a ruse. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. So this guy comes up and he is like, hey, I want you to fill out a survey about the local police. And Ray Raymond Van Nieuwenhoven said, sure, I'll do that. So then he, the the police officer undercover, basically, asked him to seal the envelope with his tongue. I don't think he said, can you seal this envelope with your tongue? But he was just like, oh, yeah, can you just go ahead and put it in that envelope and seal it for me? And luckily, he licked that envelope all licky-like. <laughs> <laughs> he licked that shit all over Yes, and so they immediately took that and tested it, and it was a match. So they didn't even have to check out the fourth brother. The, oh, really? They didn't even check him out. They were just like, all right, well, you're it. Yeah, well, they, like he, was, he, he was a perfect match. So if, they, if, if the first brother had tested, if his inhaler had tested as a match, then they wouldn't have, to, they wouldn't have had to keep going. But, it was but the, don't you want to like really make sure you're getting the right guy? If it's a 100% match, then no. It's, it's a waste of time. Van Nieuwenhoven was charged in March of 2019 with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of first-degree sexual assault, according to court records. The sexual assault charge has since been dismissed based on a previously argued defense motion um, made by his defense attorney, Lee Schuchart. Wow, there's some real good names in this I know. There's very German yeah. Ben. Which which of the uh, Vanny Winhovens was this? What do you mean? Which of Ray the, Ray this, Raymond? This is Ray. Yeah. So Raymond was this kind of character in town. I think at this point he was like eighty two years old. He had been happily married for fifty years and had multiple kids. And his wife died pretty soon after their fiftieth wedding anniversary. And so he lived alone and had like a bunch of grandkids and kids and stuff. But he lived alone in this town of like 800 near Green Bay. And he was like a local fix-it guy. And he had to stop drinking because he was a pretty violent drunk apparently. Like he would want to fight people and stuff. And so by the time the police had gone knocking to his door, he was this like basically sober fix-it guy who everybody just kind of knew is like, oh, Ray, you know, in town. Like, he was just kind of a nobody. Mm -hmm. He hadn't done anything extraordinary at all. And so when he was arrested, I'm sure it fucking put the whole town in upheaval, you know? Well, especially a town of 800. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, like I said, the sexual assault was dismissed, probably because of statute of limitations. The only thing I will say that's unsettling about this story is that everything kind of trails off after his arraignment. So on July 1st, 2019, so just about a year ago, he was actually found to be incompetent to stand trial. But they said that he could be found competent if, like, coached through it. So basically... That seems a little... Well, so I watched footage of him, you know, having charges read to him and he was just like, why am I here? This is stupid. You know, he was just kind of acting like an old man being like, fuck this. You know, I think that they were basically just saying like, hey, let's make sure he doesn't have like dementia or Alzheimer's or anything. Uh So let's not. So he he's temporarily incompetent because he can't understand the charges that are being brought against him. So why don't we have him meet with like a doctor and stuff and make sure that it's not just like an act he's putting on because Golden State Killer and shit, Joseph James D'Angelo, the second he was arrested, he acted like fucking a zombie. But like the day before he had been riding his bike and his motorcycle and he was like a very active 70 year old, 70 something year old dude, you know? And so it seems like maybe it's the same case with Van Nuenhoven where... He was doing just fine. I mean, he was fixing people's shit. And then it's just like, when he's arrested and acting like he can't do anything. Obviously, he wants to be found incompetent to stand trial because he doesn't work. Yeah, he doesn't. But like, basically, the court is saying, nah, 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 nah. This this is an act. We're going to get basically doctors to say that you're fine. You know, we're going to get doctors to say that you're fine. (laughs) But what's un- so the kind of unsatisfactory part of the story is that's it. That's the last piece of information I have. Did they ever retrieve the gun? No. I, not that I know of. Okay. That would be interesting if he had it. I mean, his DNA, his semen is all over her. I mean, someone could have stolen his semen. Or he could have had some kind of consensual sex left and then somebody else killed them. That's what you could. That's what his defense attorney would argue. I'm assuming that it's maybe they were both dead and he was wandering around the woods and was like, oh, a dead girl. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know. That could be a defense. It's Wisconsin. That's like the land of Ed Gein. And like he would bang stiffs all the time. Yeah, so maybe he's something in the milk or the cheese or whatever's going on in Wisconsin. So now that we've offended everybody in Wisconsin, I have no other updates on the case, but I will set a Google alert with Van Nuenhoven's name to see if anything else comes of it. I'm wondering if maybe like COVID-19 slowed things down or maybe he died. I couldn't. I looked up his name in like the Wisconsin like inmate uh, database and it just didn't come up. So I don't know what's happened to him. Too many letters. Yeah. But there's, there's a lot of people with that last name, but it's not one that matches the first name. So, and they're much younger than he is. So I'm assuming he's going to be found guilty or maybe he'll admit to it or not, but that's all we've got. But I, I, I mean, all signs point to that he did it. So technically speaking, that case has maybe been solved. According to you, in your mind, it has. Yes. With this well, 100% I, I needed, match from I, Nanolabs. I needed a solved case to end this episode, okay? You really wrapped it up nicely. Thank you. You're welcome. 
So we're waiting to hear on the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if nothing ever comes of it. And it's just one of those very unsatisfactory stories that has a very shitty ending. That is a weird one. Yeah. And then the dude who killed his friend in the desert and only got 16 months in prison. That one is pretty unsatisfying as well. Because it just doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. And then it kind of makes you wonder if there are really a crime had been committed, you know? That's a pretty strange one, too, yeah. Yeah. And then the Van Uwenhoven dude, it, just the fact that it kind of trails off and there's nothing else about it. Because the last thing I found was July 1st, 2019, when he was found incompetent to stand trial. But that they were going to do, like, a re-review of his, like, competency. Because the judge is like, dude, don't fuck around. You know what you're being charged with. You know that you did this. Shut the fuck up. Like, he's like, no bullshit. Uh-uh. And he wouldn't even give him a public defender. He's like, no, you can afford your own attorney. Fuck you. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that his right, though? No, I guess if you can afford... I think that he had money, and I think if you can afford... If you're the criminal being charged and you can afford representation i don't i think that the court can deny you a public defender because he did he said you don't get one you can you can get your own i wonder if he, that seems a little unlawful but maybe it's a wisconsin he thing. had no record for previous bullshit he did so he did oh. have some he did have some previous offenses thanks for bringing that up he had assaulted some girls when the six when he was like 19 years old he had like beat up and like messed up like a 16 and 17 year old girl and i think he served like six months in prison for that but other than that there isn't anything major but be because maybe he was so young he was able to get that like expunged off his record or something which is why he may have and also codis is only like they didn't start collecting DNA from all criminals until like much later. And so if he was like 18, 19 years old when he did that, that was probably back in the 40s, you know, if he's in his 80s now. So he wouldn't have gone into CODIS at that time. CODIS is a fairly recent, like maybe 80s, 90s kind of thing. Yeah. And even still, there are states who do not collect that it's seen as somewhat unlawful. Like, if you get brought in for like, let's say like a high speed chase or something, you know, something that you're definitely getting arrested for, but maybe it's not super violent or anything. Like, is it okay? Is it lawful to like collect DNA from you to keep on file forever? Because you might, you know, commit a crime in the future. Are you talking ethically or legally? Both. Um. Well, I mean, we live in a police state, so fucking of course they're going to do that. They want to have everyone under their thumb. And that's why we all have these fancy little cell phones so they can track us, whatever we do. And now that's, that's voluntary, though. You yeah. don't you don't have to have your cell phone. Well, that's the we thing. can get a landline. Oh, yeah. Because who's going to fucking <laughs> do Can I'm you just, even have yeah. a landline anymore? I don't yeah. think you can. Yeah, you can. My parents have a landline. It doesn't work. Yes, it does. Oh, I guess it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, we. Yeah. It's a it's a weird yeah. it's a weird dilemma because there's also like if you've ever watched that making of a murderer show with Stephen Avery and stuff, I still think he's I think he's somewhat guilty. I, I think he's guilty. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Sorry, Mason. Um, Sorry, Mason. <laughs> he thinks he's innocent. But there is some sketchy shit with like it does seem like maybe evidence was planted 
because there was that part where I don't know if you I don't know if you watched it, but like there definitely was a needle mark into the tube holding Stephen Avery's DNA, and oh, so he yeah. that's why it just it he, they said that it voided the murder scene because like if his and like how the DNA was found and it was stuff like compromised yeah. yeah. And so they're like, it doesn't matter how, like, this whole crime scene is compromised. Like, other crime scenes that, us, like, because because it looks like the evidence has been tampered with, we, we can't process this. So that goes back to, like, the whole A.O.J. Simpson thing yeah. where it's like, yeah, he could be guilty, but because you fucked up so bad, you allow reasonable reasonable doubt. Right. Yeah. And, like, the, the evidence is thrown out. Exactly. It's not usable. So... If you're going to do crime. Just drink some piss instead. <laughs> I, I don't even know I was going with that. <laughs> so just don't do crime. Or if you do. Plant, do crime plant. against yourself. <laughs> All right. We're a little delirious. We've been going to bed way earlier. <laughs> and it's getting late. I think so. I have Lyme disease. <laughs> really? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> you definitely have a sunburn. Yeah. So, anyways, this is our kind of sloppy welcome back to your life show. Yeah. We, we went out into the wilderness, and then we came back, and all the COVID bullshit's still happening, and everything still kind of stinks. Yeah. So, do take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We love you. And until we talk again about some pieces of garbage on our next episode you can follow us on social media we haven't plugged any of that stuff yeah i'm just saying yeah just follow us talk at us we're true crime dumpster at gmail.com true crime dumpster.com we're on facebook instagram and twitter nobody has the name true crime dumpster so if you search it it's us yeah i don't know why we're really hard to find yeah hopefully we'll be getting some merch out soon we're getting our logo We've reworked. We've got our top designers on it. Yes. Mr. Dr. Sewage. So, Mr. With the, Doctor. Mr. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, I with like all that. that being said, have a great week. And or weekend. Yeah, that. We'll see how soon we can get this out. <laughs> and join us next time where we talk out the trash. Bye-bye. Adios. Adios.